Tonight I want to open with 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Tonight I'm going to try to cover three verses of scripture with you that I've had constantly in my mind for the last four weeks and that I have worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and I think I'm ready to present it and I'll do my best and if it doesn't suit me then I'll work on it till next week and the following week and finally redo it. Tonight, if you've never seen it before, you will see it tonight. What it means to do research in the integrity and accuracy of God's word. Because so many times in my life, you know, I've seen as soon as people get through with the foundational class, they think they're research specialists. And then they can go right to work and they come up with stuff. If you're going to do research, you've got to have a background to research. You have to have... Oh, shoot. It's just something you don't get overnight. It's something you build in the innermost part of your soul. It's like Craig Martindale said the other week. He said, if you have any doubt that Jesus Christ is God, don't come into the core. You're not core caliber. Don't even want you. See? And if you have any doubt that I would for one minute endeavor to handle the word of God deceitfully, don't come in the core. That's what 2 Corinthians is talking about. Chapter 4, verse 2. Seeing having this ministry as we receive mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the shameful secret things, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the logos of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That's been my ministry for over 35 years, and it's there tonight and will continue to be. I want to make a little statement tonight. You better write it down. If Jesus Christ is God, at one place in God's word, he must be God at all places. If Jesus Christ is not God at all places, he cannot be God at one place. That's an axiomatic, self-evident, inherent truth. And we do not handle the word of God deceitfully. That scripture in Corinthians, who were living practical error, Corinthians, practical error, they were handling the word of God deceitfully, else God would never have had this word written in Corinthians because there are men who handle it deceitfully. They don't deliberately think they're handling it deceitfully. That's like the man who is born of the seed of the serpent never believes he's born of the seed of the serpent. He thinks he's God's true emissary. In First Thessalonians chapter 3, the three great verses that comprise this prayer, 11, 12, and 13, have some of the greatest truths in the word of God in them. And if you have preconceived ideas regarding these verses, you will not be able to rightly divide them and you will handle the word of God deceitfully. 
You, of course, will be sincere. You will be qualified academically, but you still will be handling it wrongly. I gave you one page out of a book tonight by Dr. Hybert, and he is a theologian considered to be a scholar. Dr. D. Edmund Hybert, and he is considered to be the foremost scholar in the world of all times on Thessalonians. I have given you a copy, a page, out of his work, which we are going to handle tonight. In the 11th verse, it says, Now God himself and our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, direct our way unto you. Verse 12, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another, and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, with all his saints. I want you to notice, first of all, here on the board, I've written it down exactly as it's given, God himself, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. In this God himself and our Father, you have one construction. Jesus Christ is the second. Am I right on this? Right. There are not three constructions here to give us the Trinity. There are only two. God himself and our Father is one construction. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the second construction. God and Jesus Christ is a compound subject. Grammatically now. Walter, I'd like for you to show them why this is true from the Greek text if you need to speak on it. God has an article in front of it in the Greek text, the article B. It's spelled H-O, use English letters. H-O is the article that's in front of the word God. Similarly, in front of the word Lord, you have an article. This is one of the distinguishing traits in the two constructions that are used here. They both have an article with them. The other one is the word our. O-U-R occurs with the word Father, and it occurs with the word Lord. In this first phrase, the main noun is God, and in the second phrase, the main noun is Jesus. These other words, Father and Lord, stand in opposition with those two nouns. Father stands in opposition with God. Lord stands in opposition apposition, with Jesus. In English, when you have an appositive following the noun it's in apposition with, you separate it with commas, right? Mm -hmm. But if the appositive precedes the noun, you don't separate it with commas. All right, anything further? Yeah. In Greek, the word chi or and it has and in there, which should be translated even, separates God from the appositive that follows, 
But down here, the appositive precedes it, and that's why the word and is not used in there, or even. Okay? All right. Now, verse 11. Now, God himself, the word himself, Walter, is the word autos. Mm -hmm. Is it reflexive or intensive? I think in the King James, it's used as a reflexive. Mm -hmm. And that implies that God must open the way for them to come to Thessalonica. If it's reflexive. Am I right, Donna Randall? Let's get in on this yes. because this becomes real significant here. If it were intensive, see, they use reflexive rather than intensive, where their believing together would open the way. If it were intensive, then their believing together would open the way. If it's reflexive, as it is in King James, then God must open the way for them to come to Thessalonica. Which is correct. It can be handled either way from the Greek text, can't it, Walter? I believe, yeah. Himself is the first word, right? right. Mm -hmm. Okay, see? Himself. Himself. If it's intensive... Then the believing together of those in Thessalonica with Paul and Silas and Timothy would open the door for their coming with God's blessing. Now just think for a moment. Is it God's will that they be more fully instructed? I think so. It's always God's will that we be fully instructed. Therefore, I just wanted you to consider it in the light of both reflexive and intensive. We didn't have a chance to discuss that this afternoon, and I thought of it after you guys left. The intensive form I'm thinking of normally has autos after the article and before the noun, but that's where it would be translated the same God. Well, I'm willing to go with reflexive, but I got to be sure that we're sure. I'm not sure on the construction, whether you could call this intensive or reflexive. Well, will you work it? Yep. Okay, and then hit me with it as soon as you know when I get back next week. And if we need to add something here, we'll sure do it. But I saw this as you guys had left and went over this again. Now, himself, God. Our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. The word Christ is omitted in some texts. I do not believe that the word Christ is necessary to the thought content here. And therefore, I would go with the omission in the text. And I think I worked in the literal. It would say the Lord of us, Jesus. Himself, God, our Father, and, or even, and, and the Lord of us, Jesus. Correct? Right. That's the order. That's the order. Okay. Now, that piece of paper that I gave you, Remember, first of all, 2 Peter 1, 21, what does it say, class? 
Now watch that very carefully when we work this stuff tonight. I'm going to be reading from that piece of paper that you have in front of you, and you can follow me word by word. Thus, first word, right? Thus to address the Lord Jesus as the object of this prayer, equally with the Father, is to ascribe full deity to him, to make Christ one with the Father in the prerogative of hearing and answering prayer, is to bracket him with the Father as equal in power and glory. He just ascribed full deity to him, right? And if it's full deity, it's not equal. It had to be what? Come on, get your eyeballs on your text. To ascribe full deity to him, it could not be equal in power and glory. It would have to be what? Identical. Right? Mm -hmm. You bet your life. Because equal angles in a triangle do not make it identical. Okay? You just stay logically accurate. Math. For a strong monotheist. A monotheist who is one. Mono means one theist God. Like Paul. This would have been unthinkable. If he had regarded Christ Jesus as a mere man, however exalted. The word mere is interesting. Jesus Christ is never a mere man. First of all, he made a mistake in his phrase where he said unthinkable if he had regarded Christ Jesus. He should have said Jesus Christ instead of Christ Jesus. Because the emphasis would be upon the Jesus part, which would be the mere man. That's why it has to come first. And he says, as a mere man. Jesus Christ is never a mere man. You and I are mere men. But Jesus Christ is the son of God. As a man. And that means that his conception was not mere what? Man. That's the difference. Jesus Christ is not a mere man. He is a man, but not a what? Mere. That's right. Don't you ever forget it. And the way ministry has never taught, never will teach, that he is a mere man. But we do teach he is a man. He is God's only begotten son. The man, Christ Jesus. Remember? Now, next paragraph. His view of Christ, talking about Paul's view, is further underlined by the fact that the verb direct, that's the latter part of verse 11, direct our way unto you. The verb direct is singular in number, although the subject is plural. Wow. One can hardly conceive of a stronger way for Paul to indicate his unquestioned acceptance of the lordship of Jesus and his oneness with the Father. That is a tremendously true sentence 
but his assumption is that Jesus Christ is God in that sentence because he has just stated it previously. Yet that line is absolutely accurate. One can hardly conceive of a stronger way for Paul to indicate his unquestioned acceptance of the Lordship, not the Godship, the what? That's exactly what the word says. And that's exactly what we believe. The lordship of Jesus and his oneness with the what? Not identical with, but his oneness in purpose with the father. Now, this, that the verb direct, and that's third person singular, direct, third person singular in number, although the subject is plural. This is the one we really want to handle. There is a figure of speech known as heterosis, H-E-T-E-R-O-S-I-S, where a singular verb is used for plural. Am I right? Plural. Walter, I think we ought to handle Numbers 32.25 at that point. I think this will show it to you. We're going to give you a number of biblical illustrations of the truth that we're setting here before you. Numbers 32.25. Can you read it, Walter? And the children of Gad and the children of Reuben spake unto Moses. That's the part you need. Right. And I explain it to him. Okay. It's heterosis is the figure. Right. Go on. The subject is plural. You have two subjects. Name them. Children of Gad and children of Reuben. Plural subjects. Okay. And the verb spake in the Hebrew is singular. You can't see it in King James, can you? uh -uh. But in the Hebrew, the word spake is in the singular, but it grammatically should be Plural. So here you have the singular used for the plural, and the reason they're used together is because of their oneness or unity of purpose in speaking unto Moses. Not in being identical, because Gad is not identical with Reuben children, but in unity of what? Purpose. They are one. That's why you have a singular verb used with a plural subject. Got it? All right. Proverbs 14, 1 and 9. Proverbs 14, 1. Every wise woman buildeth her house. The words every wise woman is a plural word in the Hebrew. It's women, wise women. And the verb buildeth is again in the singular. So you have women builds. Plural subject but a singular verb because the women who are wise are have unity of purpose when they build their house. The women are not identical, but their oneness is in unity of what? That's why it's the figure. Go on. And in verse 9, it says, Fools make a mock at sin. Fools is plural, and the verb make is, in the, is singular. Now, wait a minute. Fools is plural and make, make it, right. is singular right. in the Hebrew. And so again, the subject, the fools are all have unity of purpose in making a mock at sin. Right. 
Macriusian, right. Fools they mock. Mm -hmm. it, or right. The fools he mocks. He mocks, <laughs> but in essence it means they do, they the mock. whole together. See why it's that great figure? Now, do Second Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17 for us, Walter. Because we'll have the same thing come up in Second Thessalonians as we have here. Second Thessalonians 2, 16. It says, Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself, which is one subject, and God, even our Father, which is the second subject, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. Now in verse 17, you have your two verbs. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And they're both, both the verbs are in the singular. But you have a compound subject, which makes it a plural subject again. But it's because of the oneness in purpose or unity of purpose of God and Jesus Christ in comforting our hearts and establishing us. See how simple this becomes? It's a beautiful. Oh, it's gorgeous. Unity of purpose or oneness of purpose. Not identical with. You've got to let the word speak and change your thinking according to the word. You don't come to the word with your preconceived ideas and then work the word around to agree with your theology, which is exactly what he does on this page time after time. He's after one thing. He's got to prove that Jesus Christ is God because that's what he believes. You see, that's why men cannot do research. They've got preconceived ideas and their ideas permeate their work rather than to hold their ideas in abeyance like a true scientist has to do. And he just experiments and experiments and experiments. And if the results come out differently than what he thought they would, he goes by the results, not by what he thought. This is one of the sharpest pieces of work by one of the finest minds in the world today that we're covering on that piece of paper. And I doubt if there is one other person or two other people in the whole ministry that could handle it and see the error in it as we're picking it out. And I'm picking it out for you tonight for your learning. You drive it in your mind what it takes to do integrity and accuracy of God's word and not handle it deceitfully from a research point of view. Anything further on this, Walter, we want to say, I think we've That's covered it tremendously. It establishes, it is a figure of speech which is well documented at other places in the word. So it's not a question of twisting it around to meet our theology. It's a question of working the integrity of the word and us lining ourselves up with the word. Now, we, we gave you three or four. We gave you one, two, three. We gave you four references. We could give you quite a number of others. But if four don't suit you, you wouldn't be satisfied if you had 4,000. Now, back to your man that did the writing there. And the fact, are you there? That this occurs in his prayer and not in a doctrinal discussion indicates that it was part of the accepted faith of the Thessalonians as well as Paul. That's a very accurate line with one word wrong. Which one? That's right. Faith is wrong. 
indicates that it was a part of the accepted believing of the Thessalonians. Denny remarks, it is an involuntary assent of the apostle to the word of the Lord, I and my father are one. Denny's word involuntary indicates possession of a man's mind rather than the freedom of will or desire to choose. The rest of the sentence is accurate. Boy, you see how sharp these men are with their minds. No wonder they back the average foundational class grad back up against the wall. That's right. You don't have that knowledge and that whole ability that they have. I hate like sin when they start picking on you kids that just graduate from the core in the first year of it, second, third, or seventh. You still pin your ears back against the wall. Therefore, you do one thing. You have made up your mind to stand with this ministry because from a lot of other sources, it has not deceived you. Why should it deceive you here? And so when you can't handle it, you say, man, get off my back. I don't even want to argue about it. I believe that's what the word says. You believe what you want to believe. We'll stand before God someday. You will, so get out of my road. Every time you spend arguing with a Trinitarian, they will back you up against the wall. You'll never convince them. So why argue with them? When a man as big as this can't see it, and you're not going to convince them. So you have got to take a stand on God's word in this ministry and say, yes, sir, I believe what the way ministry represents. I believe Jesus Christ is the son of God. He's not God. So get off my back. I have a right to believe what I want to. You have a right to believe what you want to. Let God be the judge. But you've got to get that convinced. It was an essential part of the faith of the Christian church from the beginning. What was an essential part? What are they talking about? I and my father are one. That's okay with me. Sure was. One in purpose, one in unity, but not one in what? Identical. Not one as identical. Not identity. Here we see implicit in Paul's earliest letter, the lordship of Jesus Christ, which is made explicit in the epistle to the Colossians. Absolutely accurate. It's not what he means to say, but that's what he's saying. <laughs> in his mind, lordship means God. In our mind, it means what the word says, lordship. Ellicott points out the theological significance of Paul's addition of the name of Jesus. Paul's addition of the name of Jesus. Paul's addition, I circled that. What did I circle that for? Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I told you to remember Second Peter 1.21. <laughs> and, and it wasn't an addition. First of all, it wasn't Paul. It was holy men of God spake. It was Paul's vocabulary, but as directed by whom? And secondly, there is no addition. We can't find an addition. Here's his quote. The eternal son is here distinguished from the Father in respect of his personality, but mystically united with him in respect of his Godhead, and as God rightly and duly addressed in the language of direct prayer. And I wrote next to that line, nuts. 
and it sounds like the old theologian called Origen. How do you pronounce Oregon. it? Oregon. Okay, same guy. <laughs> Depends on whether you're from Boston or Florida. That's all. Pronunciation. They're always talking about the mystical. Yeah. Some of you belong to a denomination where you, all that stuff was mystical, you know, when you opened the Chamber of Commerce or whatever the <laughs> tabernacle is uh, that you opened to go in and get something out of. Bunch of baloney. Paragraph. The petition which the missionaries, this is Paul, Silas, and Timothy, make for themselves is that God may direct our ways unto you. The translation, direct our way, does not clearly convey the metaphor in Paul's mind when he used the verb, that's the verb direct, period. Now, ha <laughs> he says, direct our way does not clearly convey the metaphor. In Paul's mind. What metaphor? There isn't a metaphor here. A metaphor is a figure of what? Now I'm going to read you what a metaphor is. And it isn't here. In a metaphor. The verb is. I-S. The verb is. Always has the meaning of represents. And no other meaning. When used as a metaphor. And no other verb will do. Direct is another what? No other verb will do. Both nouns must be mentioned. And always taken in their literal sense. That's a metaphor. Both nouns must be mentioned and always taken in their literal sense. Never figurative. Always literal. And it's always the verb is, not direct. Therefore, there is not a metaphor in Paul's mind. Do you see that? Okay, Donna. I just said no wonder it's not clear. <laughs> no wonder it's not clear. Tonight you're going to see how the greatest mind on theologians if you read a commentary, how you'll get so confused, you won't know whether you're coming or going. When you end up, you will no longer be able to rightly handle the word of God. It's impossible to read these boys and believe what they've written. End up rightly dividing the word. It's impossible. Now, the ability to read them and get the error and see the error of it takes a few years of work. That's what you're in the core for, to develop yourself. First of all, to hold forth the word of God accurately and boldly. And then if you develop yourself in research as years go by, then you can handle. Else you just have to believe what we're showing you. But boy, when you work like we work this stuff, not handling it deceitfully and just hitting it accurately, you ought to be thankful to God somebody's able to do it and willing to do it. Okay. So we don't have a metaphor. It means to make straight, to lead directly toward a goal. That's absolutely accurate. Clearly, Paul's request is that God will open up a way directly back to his beloved converts by removing the obstacles which Satan has thrown into the way. 
What did we talk about on that or didn't we? I don't know, but I see something rather deceitful and devious in taking the word direct, which was in the scripture, and changing it into a different type of usage here. Using it directly, because it was used as directing or guiding in the scripture. Right. Which he himself said in the preceding right. sentence. Right. And I told you today I like this to make straight. Mm -hmm. Do you know why I believe it's to make straight our way, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to make straight, direct, to make straight our way unto you? To make straight is better than to lead directly, as he called it here. To make straight means that under no incident do you even go this way one iota. To lead directly could be like that. You'd still be leading directly toward the goal. But to lead straight toward the goal gets rid of that. That's why I think you have to go with straight. think it's that accurate. To make straight our way unto you. The verb occurs only two other times in the New Testament. Luke 1, 79 Second Thessalonians 3, 5. And in each place it has the sense of divine providence controlling human action. He believes that if the spirit is in there, the spirit will possess you. That's what the word control means. The word providence must be understood in the sense in which I teach it the sense in which he uses it here is the old theological sense of Calvin, of predestination, where you have no will to determine. God chooses one for hell. He chooses somebody else for heaven. That is his position in that verse. Well, look at it. If it's divine providence controlling human action, then the human has no control over the action. By the law, the mathematical law of deduction or the philosophical one. If divine providence, if you, for providence, if you'd use guidance, it'd be very simple. And in each place it has the sense of divine guidance. Which is true. Divine guidance of human action, but not control. He divinely guides but he does not what? He calls, but he does not possess. He invites, but does not control. That is brainwashing. Controlling. Or something. Good devil spirit brainwashing. The missionaries are making their request, but they recognize that God is the supreme disposer of events. They acknowledge their dependence upon him and know that it is his prerogative to determine the time and manner in which their prayer will be answered. There is a tricky sentence too. Unless you understand that sentence in the light of free will and believing, you miss the whole boat. God does not determine the time and the manner without the free will and the believing of the individuals. He is the supreme disposer of events, 
but not now. For this is man's what? Corinthians. Man does the what? Judging. He is the supreme disposer of the events only with the return of Christ when he comes back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Until that time, the church of the body walks and makes the decision to hold forth the greatness of God and the truth of his word and believing. All believing equals what? Now, petition formulated, verse 12. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love. The conjunction rendered and day is here better, better translated as adversative, but in harmony with the emphatic you, which stands at the beginning of the sentence. But you, whatever may be God's answer concerning our own request, but as for you, may the Lord make you to increase and abound. The missionaries are well aware that the spiritual growth and development of the readers is not dependent upon their ability to return to Thessalonica, but is in the Lord's hand. Now, Walter, you handle this, the day, which is a weak one, and all this confusion in here that we've talked about. Okay, that word that's rendered and, the word death, he says is here better translated as adversative, which is our way of saying putting it in contrast. The word Allah in the Greek, A-L-L-A, is a strong adversative or strong contrasting word, which makes it a, an emphatic but. The word chi is a strong connective, connective that yeah. connects it together, meaning and. But the word death can go either way. We normally say it's an adversative but very weak. And you can translate it either and or but depending upon the context in which it occurred. And here we felt that it would be better to go with and because of the context. Because he's saying, the Lord direct our way unto you, God and Jesus Christ. And as he makes straight our way to you, then that also makes it possible for the Lord to cause you to increase and to abound in love toward one another. Because as we get to you with the word, then you increase in love. Okay, now hold that a minute, because we only got ten minutes left and Walter has to leave. I want to go to the paragraph at the bottom of your page on the right-hand side and let Walter move ahead on this. The specific petition for the readers is that the Lord will cause them to increase and abound in love. The two verbs are both aorist optatives of wish. They're virtually synonymous in import, and the use of both strengthens the expression of the prayer wish. The former means to become more, to increase, to be in abundance, while the latter means to be present in abundance to overflow. They may be rendered to increase to overflow. The former may be viewed as pointing to the process of growth and the latter to superlative attainment. Then they may be thought of as standing in a relationship of cause and effect. The petition is not merely that their converts will increase, but will be filled to overflowing in love. It is assumed that love is already present in their lives. The request is that it may increase to overflowing fullness. Its overflowing presence is a tangible evidence of robust 
faith has to be believing. Genuine Christian love whose characteristics are set forth in 1 Corinthians 13 is the one thing in the Christian life which cannot be carried to excess. Now, the great thing here is to increase and abound in love is a figure of speech. It's hendiades. And it's a verb. And Walter, and Luke 6, 48 first. To increase and abound in love. That's what we're after. It's a figure of hendiades, which he never mentions, which he never sees. Luke 6, 48 says, He is like a man which built a house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. Now, you don't see this figure in the, the King James, but it says digged deep. The, um, what version was it? RV. RV, revised version, says he digged and went deep. Literally, the Greek is he dug and deepened. You have two verbs used. He dug and went deep or deepened the pit. Have two verbs meaning essentially the same thing, but they're used together. Two things said, one thing meant to strengthen that he really dug down until he got to that rock that gave him the solid foundation. Right. Now look at Acts thirteen forty one. Same truth as here in Thessalonians. Thirteen forty one. Behold, ye despisers. And wonder and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. He says, wonder, behold ye despisers, both wonder and perish. perish. And now, now again, they can't see it in the King James, you've got to see it in the Greek, right? To some extent. Okay, it's to ahead. wonder and to perish, the wandering is, I guess, from the Greek word thaumazo. Yeah. Really understand that. It's not just like, it's like your mind's really blown. Your, what was the words we used? Frustrate, even to the point of frustration where you're just absolutely amazed somehow. Just can't believe it. To wander. And because of that wandering frustration and so on, you, you also perish. That's how they're connected. So it's... Perish wanderingly. Yeah, to, literally it would be to perish wanderingly. The they figure is wander and perish. Wander and perish wanderingly. That's Hendiades. That's what you have in here. To increase and abound in love. Did you say it's super abounding? Yes, right. Superabound. Okay. One of the lexicons. One of the lexicons. Superabound. To increase to the end that you super what? Now, look at it, class. Can that be the Christ in you? No. Christ in you is all that you're ever going to get. The love of Christ is all you ever get spiritually, right? So when something superabounds in manifestation, it has to be in what category? The walk, the renewed mind. They don't understand the renewed mind. They don't understand the difference between faith and believing. They don't understand the difference between equal and identical. Well, when are we going to start growing up? Well, anything else you want to add there, Walter? Else I see your time has almost come to...
go on your way rejoicing. Mm-hmm. Won't be as good as this session. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. Thanks, Walter, for coming in anyways and giving us an hour here so we could work. Have a good night. Live it up. I want to go back to the paragraph now above this on your page. The one that starts with the Lord. You see that? The Lord, to whom alone? And the Lord, to whom alone this second petition is directed, may be either the Father or Christ. It may not be either the Father or Christ because to him, Father would mean God. The Lord to whom this second petition may be addressed has to be our Lord Jesus Christ or if you omit the word Christ as I suggested, then verse 12, in your verse 12 in your King James some of the critical Greek texts and one of the oldest dating to the 5th century, I forget which one, the Alexandrius, adds the word Jesus, and I think it ought to be in. That will really put it together. That brings verse 11. Now you look in your word carefully. And our Lord Jesus, got it? Verse 11. Make straight. Is that what I used a while ago? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Make straight our way unto you and the Lord Jesus, verse 12. Not the Father, but the Lord Jesus. Got it? Make you to increase and abound. Increase to the end that you overflow. Abound. Superabundance. In love one toward another. Now watch the double talk, triple talk. Since the designation, do you see those words? Since the designation here, as in verse 8 above, if ye stand fast in the Lord, is the verse 8, remember? Handle it the other night. Since the designation here stands alone, it may mean God according to the frequent usage of the Old Testament. It cannot mean God because it's the Lord Jesus usage. Now what he means here is that Old Testament usage, God our Savior. Where is that? In which, which prophecy? Isaiah? Isaiah, I believe, yes. Nine. Yep, someplace in there. That's what he means. But Paul's usage of the title by itself for Christ, that's an assumption because he doesn't use it of Christ. He uses it of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, as well as the application of the term Jesus in the preceding clause makes it more probable that he, Jesus, is meant here also. <laughs> the word also must be scratched. Also, why? Never used any other way. Boy, you see this double, triple talk. It's just winding you around their finger and you end up just total confusion. Parentheses. <laughs> That's a figure of speech. <laughs> totally out of order. 
The addition of the name Jesus in a few manuscripts makes this meaning explicit. Doesn't have to put it in parentheses. That line's real true. Paul's use of this term, which was familiar to readers of the Old Testament as a name of God, remember, God our Savior, Joshua, to denote Christ, and I wrote next to that no, with a capital N and a capital O, as a name of God. Joshua is never a name of God, not once in the word. Jesus is never God's name. There were a lot of Jesuses, right? Paul's use of this term, which was familiar to readers of the Old Testament, as the name of God to denote, is consistent with his encounter with the glorified Jesus on the road to Damascus. That's a bunch of crap. Boy, oh boy. Straight to the eye. Huh? Straight to the eye. What's that? Private interpretation. Oh. <laughs> that, you know, it's an assumption. Just putting stuff in. He said on the road to Damascus, didn't he say, who art thou, Lord? Read the dumb thing. X what? Okay. X nine, 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 nine. Who art thou, Lord? And he said, the word Lord is scratched. Oh, no text for it. And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou art persecuted again similarity perhaps but not identical boy that is so easy to understand if you want to understand it and if you don't want to understand it God almighty can't change you because you got freedom of the will to stay stupid ignorant imbecilic and anything else you want to do there are a lot of similarities perhaps between <laughs> My son Donald or JP and myself. A lot of similarity. We are at one many times in unity of purpose, oneness, but that does not make them identical with their father. It makes them equal with their father, but not what? Boy, how simple. Neil remarks it was only when he came to know Jesus. When he came to know Jesus, that the word kurios, meaning Lord, the ordinary word for the Lord in the Old Testament came to have a real vital content. That's an assumption, too. Basil suggests that the Lord here meant the Lord the Spirit, thus reading the Trinity into this passage. Sweet is favorable to the suggestion and points out that it's the Spirit's office to produce love. Poor fellow. <laughs> Even that fellow's isolated to an office. <laughs> but there is no evidence in the New Testament that the Spirit is the giver of love in distinction from joy, peace, and other spiritual what? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> He wouldn't understand fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. He doesn't understand the manifestation.
boy, in my heart, I just feel sorry for people like this. And yet, these are the brains, these are the people that the world will believe. And that, I think, is true because the adversary backs this kind of thing up. If I was the adversary, I'd back it up too. That'll get you in total confusion and you'll never rightly divide the word and you'll only stand approved before God when you rightly divide the word. And when you believe the rightly divided words, which are ascribed both to Christ and the Spirit as their source, it is equally appropriate to think of Christ as the indwelling power enriching their hearts unto love. That the reference is to the Spirit as nothing to recommend it except the desire to find the Trinity in this passage. That's a true lie. Huh? <laughs> Really something, isn't it? Even as we do unto you, verse 12, do you see it? Even as is a simile, a figure. You want to explain it to him, Donna? Mm -hmm. Even as are two words that denote a comparison. So they've he's been saying abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as in comparison to the way our love abounds to you as we do toward you. Are we going to handle the uh, ace here? Let Did me? we? Yeah, you handled the ace. Okay. There are all um, four of them in there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if you have a Greek, you don't have Greek text. Okay, then you put the ace in your King James or put it on a piece of paper because it becomes very significant, very important in here. Go ahead, Donna. Okay, and the Lord Jesus make you increase and abound in love. One toward, that toward is ace. Unto, in other words, another. And the next word again is ace. Unto all men. Hold it now. Toward is ace, meaning mm -hmm. unto. Toward is ace, meaning unto. Now go on. Now we're going to have a comparison in here. Even as we do ace toward you. Unto you. Go on. Now the first part of verse 13 is another ace. To the end. To the end. To the those, end is ace. Those three words, to the end, in your King James are the singular word ace, meaning unto. Now, there is no he in the Greek text. There is that's, no, no pronoun. No pronoun. And no word may. So it's toward or unto establishing. Now, in the Greek, that's an infinitive, but in it's English, a, it's you can't. It's a gerund or an infinitive? No, it's an infinitive in the Greek. We translate it as a gerund okay. for the simple reason. Otherwise, you've got unto to establish, <laughs> right. which doesn't make sense no. in English. So unto establishing your hearts unblameable and holiness before God and so forth right you see the aces the second one is the second toward mm -hmm. in love one toward what that's the second one then the third one we do what and the fourth one is to the end got it okay now they can see, you, you want to cover the, the build-up of this, or do you want me to go on with you that? You go on with that. Okay. The Lord Jesus makes you, well, my wording was aboundingly increased. That's that figure that, that they explained, Hendiades. Right. In love, one unto another, and unto all men, in comparison as we unto you, unto establishing your hearts unblameable. See the progression of it, the untos? See, if you put to the end in there, you're setting verse 13 separate. If you've had the words, you know, to the end is a purpose. 
Okay, you're setting 13 separate as a purpose rather than making it a part of the progression or a part of the process from verse 12. That's right. It's not set apart. It is a continuation of. It is the process, the outgrowing of it. You understand it as a purpose? But it's all bound together. It's not a separate thing. That's right. Anything further on that? No, that's it, I think. Okay. We didn't have time to handle this when Walter was here. And, of course, I didn't put it on your paper. I think that's the end of your paper, isn't it? Yeah, we covered everything on your paper. But he has another paragraph in here that I want to read. You see, that infinitive, establish the infinitive. This is what he says. And the articular, aorist infinitive, which is true. It's an aorist infinitive. To sterexi, to establish, is a common construction to denote purpose. That's right. While the Greek construction, now listen, does not express a personal subject as does our English translation. The he of verse 13, the he is clearly the Lord. And I wrote next to it, nuts. There is no he anywhere in the text, but it's convenient for him to put one in or to leave this one in here in King James because it promulgates his theology. The Lord works through their increasing love. The Lord works through their increasing love to establish them, make them firm and solid. That is not true. The Lord does not work through their increasing his love to establish them. Because when you have the Lord, when you confess with your mouth, Jesus says what? It's Christ where? How much love does he bring? Therefore, can that love ever increase? Then what increases? Renewed mind believing in your walk. Make them firm and solid in Christian character. Only as Christ develops in them, listen to this, only as Christ develops in them the needed inner spiritual stability will they be able to stand firm and unmoved through whatever the future holds. And again, I wrote a big no next to it. Only as Christ develops in them, he is fully developed in us. It is Christ where? Boy, oh boy. It's not a matter of Christ developing within me. It's a matter of my developing in him. It's a matter of my walking in the light as he is what? Not Christ developed in you. He's full born. He is complete. It's Christ in you. Nothing what? Lacking. He turns right around and contradicts himself in this line. Listen. Timothy has been sent to Thessalonica to help establish them. Why send Timothy? The Lord does this. It's the same old damnable teaching. You know, if you're born again, God will take the desire for chewing tobacco away from you. He doesn't do anything like it. He gives you the power. I can do all things through Christ. In him we are more than what? But only as we believe it. Only as we practice it. Listen to this. That was separated by a comma. Now here comes the error. Same line. 
This prayer is a reminder that however helpful the ministries of the Lord's servants may be, it is the Lord himself who must work that inner stability in them. That's not true. The inner stability is already Christ in you. How stable is he? The inner stability within my life then is not spiritual. It's in my mind to the end that I put on the mind of Christ and have the stability of Christ up here, which he by his mercy and grace is the inner man. The prayer is that your hearts may be established. In scripture, the heart is a comprehensive term standing for the whole inner life, including thought, feeling, and will. Pretty good. You know, the, that heart is that inner being of yours, which we know. Christian stability is not achieved through outward conformity to rules and regulations, needful as that is, but through the development of conscious inner strength and stability. Turns right around and says exactly what we believe. Through your believing, your conscious, 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 conscious head, inner strength and this conscious what? Ability. Build upon the integrity and accuracy of the word. For we are what the word of God says we are. We have what the word of God says we have. And we believe it. And believing is what brings it into manifestation and wonderful fruition in our lives. To the end, unblameable in holiness. Unblameable. He says in here, which is accurate, it denotes not the process of becoming, but rather the quality of being holy. I think that's good. Not the process of becoming, but rather the quality, the quality, the process of becoming. This, oh look, it's simple to me. This holiness on the inside is Christ. That's holy. Now, when I put this on in my mind, unto the establishing of your hearts, unblameable in holiness in holiness then that becomes the quality of my living mm -hmm. that which is on the inside of me but I don't think he knew that no I know he didn't but it's good <laughs> here's another great line it has an ethical quality which reveals itself in purity of life the demand for holiness is rooted in the fact that by virtue of his acceptance of the atoning work of Christ the believer has been separated from the world and set apart as belonging unto God spiritually that he doesn't have. That which is devoted to God must be separated from sin. Genuine holiness is motivated by the obligations which love imposes. That's fantastic. God so loved that he saved us. Therefore, we so love. We don't love to get saved, but because he loved to save us, Therefore, we love. We don't work for salvation, but because he saved us, we work to bless others. Establish your hearts unblameable. Does not say without any mistakes, but without what? Blame. Unblameable. In holiness, unblameable is to find no fault with. Or free from censure. It basically indicates that no matter what charge. The adversary lays against us. No charge against us can be maintained. 
holiness before God, even our Father. Really something, isn't it? Sounds like separation again. Huh? I was looking at the separation again. Yeah. God our Father and the coming of the Lord Jesus right. Christ. What you want to say about it? Well, I just see the separation again, not not uh, Jesus Christ being God. That's right. <sighs> Unto the establishing of your hearts, the innermost part of your being, unblameable in our holiness. And holiness is the walk of believing the word, people. It has nothing to do with chewing tobacco or hunting rabbits. It's the word before God, even our Father. And this happens at the coming, at the coming, that's at the Perusa of our Lord Jesus Christ, at the coming of our Lord, the humiliated one, Jesus, who is the Christ, the Curios, the Messianic sent one, with all his saints. He says here, this at once opens up the debate as to whether Paul means the holy angels, the saints, or both. Those who think Paul means angels point to the fact that the Old Testament, later Jewish later, including the Dead Sea Scrolls, they're frequently so designated. Also, our Lord speaks of a retinue of angels who accompany his return in glory. In 2 Thessalonians 1.7, Paul speaks of angels in connection with the revelation of Christ. That the expression, all his holy ones, with all his saints, as is with all his holy ones, must include the saints, seems clear from the fact that this is a standard New Testament term for the redeemed. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. He can't come back with his redeemed at the Padusa. If he came back now, if he came back right this moment, he couldn't come back with the redeemed because they're not yet where? See, are the dead alive now? What does he think? He thinks the dead are alive. The word says that the dead in Christ shall what? Then they're not up there. Then he can't come back with them. Therefore, by sheer logic, these holy ones can then not be the redeemed. They have to be what? Angels? Messengers? We conclude that he means only the redeemed here. The saints here appear to be those who have died in Christ and are brought with him at his coming to catch away his church. And he is the authority on Thessalonians. This is an interesting truth that intrigues me. If Timothy's report had contained no account of that which is lacking in your faith, we know it's believing, verse 10, this letter might suitably have closed here. But the mention of the deficiencies in the faith, in the believing, which changed the word faith to believing, of the readers prepares the way for the second half of the letter which deals with the needed instructions and exhortations. And that's right. But, you see, to establish in the faith or in the believing, who in the world never needs more? I do. I can always receive more of God's word, understanding of it, 
It's like love. You never get too much. Word of God, you never get too great an understanding. And that is why, of course, Paul couldn't deliver it in person at this time because he was being hindered. And perhaps the reason he was continuing to be hindered is because neither his believing nor the believing of the Thessalonians was to the end where they believed, I call it big enough for lack of a better term, that their believing was so fantastically beyond what the adversary was laying against them that they were free to go and teach it in person. Therefore, he had to write it. And that's where the second part of this great epistle comes in. There's one more thing about verse 13 that I think must be in that verse, and that is the word amen at the end of it. Mm -hmm which is not in your King James, but it is in some of the texts. And I think it ought to be there. It's the end of a prayer, and it's really the end of a fantastic presentation of God's word. Moffat, Williams, Berkeley, those fellows all put the amen in. 